This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, are you ready to learn about a care continuum strategy that can be activated to improve population health outcomes? Well, you're going to hear from the CEO of Delaware Valley Accountable Care Organization about how they went about doing that. DVACO has been around since 2014. They've been in the MSSP since that time. And over the years, the ACO has been working closely with commercial and MA payers in an effort to grow and expand their mission of value-based care. This is an ACO that has over 2,000 physicians, manages over 250,000 beneficiaries in their value-based portfolio. They just in the last performance year in the MSSP saved $22 million. It's a health system-led ACO. It currently sits under the umbrella of two CINs. They have an equity relationship with Humana as well, and we talk about that in the podcast. Our guest this week is Dr. Mark Angelo. As I said, he's the CEO and president of the Delaware Valley ACO, and He's in this role where he oversees clinical strategy and operations. He's put together a really amazing care continuum strategy, and we go into great depth talking about this important work that they're doing in the ACO to manage care across the continuum. He's a palliative care and hospice physician. We talk a lot about post-acute care and how that plays into the work. And most importantly, we talk about the infinite game mindset that he has as a leader. How do we go about transforming population health outcomes, creating long-term sustainability for the, for our organization and better serving our communities and addressing health inequities and creating a legacy of care? And it's a pleasure to, to bring this podcast episode to you this week. Dr. Angelo also has a new book out called Caring for Our Communities that just came out. And check out this important interview. You're going to learn a lot. So let's hear from Dr. Mark Angelo as he joins us this week in the race to value. Mark, welcome to the race to value. It is so amazing to have you on the show this week. I've been really looking forward to having you on the podcast and I, I can't wait to talk about all the great work that you're doing there at Delaware Valley ACO. Thanks, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. appreciate the opportunity. Well, Mark, you're the CEO and president of Delaware Valley ACO, serves communities in the greater Philadelphia area and in this role, you oversee clinical strategy and operations, including quality, population health, pharmacy, clinical integration, care coordination, post-acute networks, practice transformation. You're really doing a lot, and it's one of the largest ACOs in the country. In addition to serving as an executive within the ACO, you're a practicing palliative care doctor who continues to see patients. And I'm also excited to share with our listeners that you've just written a book. It's entitled Caring for Our Communities, A Blueprint for Better Outcomes in Population Health, and it's now available for purchase on Amazon. And I was looking at the book, and you end the book with a powerful statement about the opportunity for value-based care transformation. And you state, during this historic post-COVID time of financial pressures coupled with an aging population and the impending solvency of the Medicare Trust Fund, we are compelled more than ever to take action, to decrease administrative burdens, create a paradigm of transparency and stewardship. We have the right technology. We have the skill. We must lean in with integrity 
towards the opportunity to create a system that will be there to serve us when we someday need it most. And at that point, we can look up from the stretcher and be proud of what we've created, knowing that we too will be the beneficiaries. And you cap that powerful quote with a, another quote from Margaret Mead, the uh, famous American anthropologist, where she says, never doubt a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens that can change the world. And indeed, it is, it is the only thing that ever has. So Mark, with that frame, I, I, as we start our conversation today, I'd, I'd love to get your take about value-based care leadership and the altruism of practicing medicine. Can you share your personal story about how you got into population health and what the value-based care movement means for you and in the future of our country overall? Yeah, sure. I'm happy to, Eric. I am, as you mentioned, I'm a practicing palliative care doc and had the opportunity to do a lot of great stuff with palliative care in the practice uh, where I was prior to my current employment. And while I was there, we it was an anniversary of our palliative care program at the time. And we looked around and I was looking at my nurse and the staff and I said, we do such great work and I love what we're doing for patients who are approaching the end of life, patients with serious illness. I just, I wish that we could deliver services like this a little bit to the left of the life of the lifeline. Like how do we potentially deliver services to patients uh, before they are at the end of life? So that really began my journey into population health. Really, it was a desire to deliver these wraparound services to patients who have not just end-of-life issues, but just people who have chronic issues or chronic disease or even really any stage of the continuum of care. Now, how do we help to manage folks anywhere they may be with services that are meaningful to them? Well, Mark, as a leader in implementing strategy and value-based care, you've been active in managing the DVACO network and overseeing the care continuum work for the Jefferson Health and Mainline Health Systems. And DVACO holds su successful risk contracts with multiple payers, including a Medicare shared savings program population of approximately 80,000 beneficiaries, as well as multiple other commercial and MA programs for a total of approximately 260,000 members. And DVACO is a health system associated ACO. It has different levers of success than one would have in a physician-based ACO. And for your success, it's been important to create a, a strong post-acute care strategy by recognizing that there were disparities in the continuum of care that existed, such as social drivers and medication access and provider bias, literacy challenges in health, language and technology, and and even embedded systemic racism that we all deal with as an industry. And the continuum of care starts with getting people and your populations on board with the primary care professional to ensure care continuity, collaborative planning, shared decision-making, the case management for people with complex needs. And, and that continuum then encompasses all the chronic illness care, acute care, post-acute care, and community dwelling. And I'd like to engage you on the post-acute care aspect of this continuum. It's been so effective in intensively managing handoffs from the acute care setting. DVACO has been successful in identifying those post-acute care cases that are considered to be outliers. And you estimate a length of rehabilitation stay based on diagnosis and other factors and evaluate beneficiaries who stay beyond that expectation. And your ACO team is out there working to evaluate an optimal scenario where the patient can return home and receive what they need in terms of equipment or medications and, and even transition to home-based nursing. So Mark, could you elaborate on the ACO's care continuum work? How significant has that strategy in post-acute care been on the success of the ACO and why are effective post-acute care transitions increasingly important in a value-based world? Yeah, sure. I'm happy to, Eric. So when we started our post-acute care journey, like most ACOs, we began to focus on skilled nursing facilities. So that focus on skilled nursing facilities involved creating a preferred network. That would be a preferred network of 
facilities that are in the vicinity that patients are likely to go to that had a good level of quality. They had to have a certain level of STARS performance. They had to have a certain level of patient experience scores. There were some staffing requirements, et cetera. So we set that salary in place and that we started with that right when the ACO started, which was in 2014. So almost 10 years old now. So we put that in solidly in place at the beginning of the ACO's journey. And as we have gone along, we've learned a lot of lessons in terms of managing the skilled nursing facilities, but then also expanding to other areas as well. Well, Mark, let's drill into the skilled nursing component of DVACO's post-acute care strategy. It encompasses 85% of your efforts in that part of the continuum. And the ACO, uh, as you mentioned, it's developed a strategic select network of SNFs that have, have been determined using these intensive analytics to profile the landscape in terms of cost and quality. And at DVACO, you also use those anal you also use analytics to understand ex expected length of stay for people in post-acute care. And you then manage those who are outliers from those expectations. And consequently, you found that around 60 to 65% follow a normal SNF plan of care. And another 25 to 30% can be managed by an actively engaged SNF administrator with the appropriate scripting and ACO support. And about 5 to 10% require care coordination intervention, utilizing ADT alerts and length of stay guidelines you know, for your team. And your SNF population is expertly managed on an exception basis with a developed methodology that allows for that effective outlier management and uh, care retention to the preferred network has been demonstrated at an ACO level, and you're using a data-driven approach with claims data and real-time readmission tracing to monitor performance of your SNF partners over time. And after honing effectiveness with your SNF strategy, I, I know the ACO has since adopted adjacent strategies for home health and hospice along the post-acute care continuum. And you've also begun to look at outpatient therapy as well. Could you uh, elaborate uh, more on your uh, care continuum journey in developing that SNF strategy in the ACO? And why was it important for DVACO to graduate the PAC strategy into something larger over time? Well, the genesis of graduating from a post-acute care focus to what we now call our care continuum focus has been, we don't want to focus just on the acute care activity that's happening, right? When we say post-acute care, obviously the word acute care is in there. So our goal is not to focus on the acute care. Our goal is to really focus on the whole continuum, the whole journey of the patient. How do we maybe uh, take care of patients in the post-acute care, but how do we prevent them from end up ending up within the hospital walls? How do we uh, help to manage them even when they're inside the hospital walls to make sure that their transition is a safe one? In terms of hospice, I'm really interested in how that's integrated into the the care continuum. It seems like hospice might be a good thing. Wouldn't we want to increase utilization of hospice care to avoid unnecessary hospitalizations? How does that fit into the equation? Sure. Our care continuum activities includes post-acute care, which is skilled nursing facility. We look at home health, we look at hospice, and we look at therapy. And all of those come together to equal how we manage these patients across the whole continuum of care. When we think about home health first, we say we want to maximize home health to the point where we can deliver care that's meaningful to patients, care that can help to keep them out of the hospital, care that can help them as they get better from some uh, acute issue, or care that can prevent them from ending up in the hospital. So when we think really about home health, we think the same thing about hospice too, right? I agree with you. Hospice care is a good thing. We want to increase opportunities for our patients to leverage services that are helpful for them. We don't stand in the way of anyone receiving services that they'd like to receive, including hospice. We promote hospice. But what we found is that there are 
there's good hospice and then there's suboptimal hospice. Some of the suboptimal hospice would be length of stay that could be more than 180 days. And when someone signs a hospice certification, it's that the expectation of that patient's life is that it's going to be six months or less. So when someone has a length of stay of more than six months, we don't look to discharge them from hospice, but we just look to understand what's the patient's condition. Are they continuing to follow their typical plan of care? Is Has there been any, anything new or anything different that we need to focus on or any other services that may be helpful for the patient to deliver in a way that are that may be more consistent with the patient's needs? I'd love to go more in depth in terms of how you're creating the right environment to reduce total cost of care and frail elders. I know looking at the outpatient therapy modality has helped to some extent in, in looking at that. You've partnered with home-based therapy providers who provide a uh, who, who have shown a history of providing therapy in just the right zone, and they perform all the medication reconciliation. They collaborate with the ACO. I, could you speak a little bit about that as well in terms of outpatient therapy and how that's been additive to the care continuum work that you've created? Yeah, we actually petitioned CMS to begin sending us information about therapy about home-based therapy. And, and for the listeners out there who may be familiar with, this is Medicare B reimbursed home-based therapy that we're talking about. And through the conversation that we had and a number of other ACOs had with CMS, we are now receiving information on patients receiving home-based therapy. Again, that adds to that care continuum that we're talking about. When we looked across the network, we found that there was a wide array of amount of physical therapy that was being delivered. So we found that there were some people who were getting therapy two to three times a week for the entire year. And we found some people who were receiving therapy one to two times and then never received therapy again. So we wanted to actually take a, a, a nuanced look at how therapy was delivered and try to determine what level of therapy and what we called in our study, our optimal dose, what is the optimal dose of home-based therapy for a frail elderly population to help to manage them so that we can limit hospitalizations, minimize costs for the patients and for the system as well. So when we looked at the cost we did find that there was an optimal zone of therapy. That optimal zone of therapy was between 12 and 32 therapy units. For those of you who don't, who are not physical therapists, a therapy unit uh, is not the same thing as an hour of therapy. A typical hour of therapy is about two and a half units of therapy. So what we found for frail elders to receive anywhere between 12 and 32 therapy units spread out across the course of a year was the zone in which uh, we saw a decrease in the total cost of care. Less than that, we saw more cost. Higher than that, we saw more cost. But we did find that there was right around that optimal zone, as I'm mentioning to you. Well, Mark, the, the costs across this post-acute care continuum are so varied, and it, it really does make it ripe for patients to, to stay too long in an, in, an, in an inappropriate setting. And it's such an important problem to solve for in value-based care. If you look at reimbursement, Medicare pays on average $2,500 in the 30 days after discharge for a patient who received home health compared to 11,000 or more for uh, those admitted to SNF, 15,000 for those that are cared for in a rehab hospital. And post-acute care is the largest driver of overall Medicare spending variation. And it, there's not really a sense of transparent market-wide data with 
longitudinal analytics and uh, understanding of the network. And that's something that you've uh, seemingly overcome and and the application of your technology and analytics. And But I know many of our listeners out there are thinking about, you know, how do we go about trying to build a, a post-acute care network? Uh, I'd love to see if you could provide some advice uh, to our listeners out there about how they could better manage variation in, in post-acute care costs due to these poorly coordinated transitions. Could you share with our listeners some success stories uh, with the partnerships that you've had uh, along the continuum and how you've been able to optimize the full spectrum of care? Yeah, sure. I, I think that when a an organization decides to start a post-acute care program, the focus is generally on skilled nursing facilities. And that's the right way to go. That's the majority of your spend, just as you're saying, Eric, that is really where the largest spend variation will be. So you really should focus on the skilled nursing facilities. Those SNFs, there's, there is a great amount of variation. And there's a lot of turnover in SNFs. SNFs have a lot of challenges going on right now. So looking at the quality is not just important for the cost, but it's really important for the experience of your patients as well. And I can't, I can't overstate the importance of that. So when you think about starting a program, you want to think about what's your geography, what are the opportunities for patients in your geography? Where are your people going already, right? And you should have this. If you are an ACO, you should have that information. You should know where your patients are going and are they going to facility A or facility B and at what rate they're going to these facilities. And then you have to start looking at facility A and facility B and what's their quality? What's the patient's experience? Maybe you want to actually take a tour through there and get the get a real feel for boots on the ground. What's it like being in the facility? Is the facility willing to work with your organization? Are there administrators willing to partner with you to try to create a better experience, a better quality, a better cost and length of stay for your patients? So it's important that you find initially a small, and I do have to say it should be small network of preferred providers that you can help to steer patients toward. These are organizations that are of high quality, of better cost and better outcomes. So that's all gonna be worthwhile when it comes to the patient experience. Once you get moving and you start to have your skilled nursing facility portion of your post-acute care activities well underway, then it's time to start thinking about how do we expand this? And how do we really think about not just managing uh, the post-acute care skilled nursing facility, how do you maybe graduate that into something like including home health? Maybe now you wanna to start to include hospice as well. We actually included home health and hospice right around the same time because we wanted to understand what are our options for home health? What are our options for hospice? And we mirrored some of the learnings that we had from our skilled nursing facilities, and we created a preferred network of providers in home health and in hospice. That preferred network of providers in home health same things that we look for in SNFs. Uh, we looked at Medicare STARS reports. We looked at patient experience information. We looked at were the leaders of the organization willing to work with us and interested in performing well in value-based care. Not everyone is particularly interested in performing well in value-based care because I think that the organizations may worry that it may cut their revenue in the home health space or the hospice space. So we really had to find a group of willing individuals who wanted to be part of the ACO, and we helped to understand, are they delivering great quality? Are they delivering care that, that was meaningful and improving the lives of our patients? And then they become our preferred network of home health. 
Same thing on the hospice side. What's their quality rating? What's the uh, family's experience of care? And so now, and we also have to make sure we cover a good geography as well, because covering that geography is important. You want to make sure that your patients have choice and that your patients have good options for good quality providers that you have vetted for them, right? I don't know if you've ever been in a bed somewhere and been told that you may need to go to another facility, but that's a very difficult time for someone to begin vetting facilities. Much better that the ACO or the value-based care organization or the health system has already vetted these organizations to say, hey, we have looked at the organizations in our geography and these four or these six are uh, what we believe are really top quality, top performance. We work with them very frequently and we've had good outcomes. That's a good story to tell your patients. It's an important story to tell your patients. It helps you to manage patients across the continuum. And then you also want to make sure whether it's skilled nursing facilities, whether it's home health, whether it's hospice, that these organizations are communicating with you. And are they communicating with you in a meaningful way? Are they giving you information about your patients along the way so that you can help with that management? You don't want to be told that somebody needs durable medical equipment on the day they're expected to be discharged. That should be told in advance. We should understand things like, well, there may be a caregiver situation in someone's home, and what can we do? What community-based organizations can we leverage to potentially facilitate that discharge? So that discharge planning shouldn't happen in the last 24 hours of discharge. That should be happening all along. And that's an important factor when it comes to creating partnerships in, across the care continuum. Well, Mark, the ACO has truly developed an exceptional strategy for the care continuum and post-acute care is an underlying thesis for the performance of the ACO, but it certainly doesn't tell the whole story. Your ACO has a population health playbook that includes several important initiatives and patient interventions like care coordination, preventative care, integrated behavioral health, wellness coaching, identifying and mitigating social factors that affect health, collaborative med uh, medical care through co-location and close communication. You're looking at how to enhance access to care. You're focusing on quality outcomes. And the ACO's Population Health Playbook has been written about recently for its focus on palliative care, which is a modality that, according to a recent NACO survey, only 10% of ACOs even focus on. And your results with this program have been outstanding. DVACO has leveraged a comprehensive community-based palliative care program developed in partnership with Mainline Health, and you've demonstrated a reduction in uh, costs of care and instances of low-value care. And among Delaware Valley's palliative care recipients, hospital admissions were 50% lower and emergency department visits fell by 35%, generating about 9,000 in savings per patient during the last 90 days of life. Could you provide our listeners with a brief overview of your general blueprint for improving population health outcomes and what's worked best in your health system ACO model beyond post-acute care? And how has palliative care and other approaches helped the ACO manage total cost of care for patients outside of the typical PAC timeframe? Yeah, sure, Eric, and appreciate the opportunity to have that discussion. If you are an ACO and you are not focusing on your serious illness population, you are missing a big opportunity. Your serious illness population are the folks who have the heaviest illness burden, the most challenges across the population for sure, and very likely the heaviest cost burden as well. For an ACO organization to be successful, you do have to focus on those individuals who have serious illness. We have turned our focus at DVACO to those who have serious illness. So what that means is that we had to create an analytics methodology 
where we would find people across the network who do have serious illness. And we did create a criteria and we did, we did apply that criteria and it helped us to find the right folks who maybe either need help right now or in that kind of what we call a rising risk bucket. In other words, may have a new diagnosis and may have some rising needs. And we want to make sure that we're addressing the needs of those folks before they get out of control. And, and can we uh, steer them toward the right providers who we know are going to deliver care that's consistent with the goals of the ACO and care that's consistent with high value, uh, high quality, low cost. We want to make sure that's an important factor. So what we did was, so first we created our analytics methodology to find these individuals. And then we begin with care coordination. And we do our best to care coordinate these people to guide patients along the path so that they're not getting duplicative care, that they're getting the services that they need. That if somebody needs something like a short course of home-based therapy, we go ahead and arrange for that so that they could potentially remain in their home for longer and remain independent for longer. When we started on this journey, we actually brought in an expert on palliative care from New York. Her name is Dr. Diane Meyer. And she came and spoke to our organization and spoke about palliative care, got folks interested in what's this palliative care platform, how does it fit in with population health, and that really was the kickoff of moving us more toward a palliative focus, and that palliative focus has been a win for us on many levels. We have, you know, number one, and most importantly, we have successfully improved the lives of individuals in our population. Secondly, we have decreased the cost of care at the end of life. An example of this uh, activity that we're doing in palliative care is that we are managing folks using a home-based palliative care service. So through a partnership with Mainline Health, who is one of the owners of Delaware Valley ACO, we helped to stand up a home-based palliative care program. That home-based palliative care program is a comprehensive palliative program. It is, there are providers, physicians, uh, advanced practice nurses, uh, therapists, chaplains, durable medical equipment that people may need. There's a full cadre of, there's a full list of things that we deliver to people that is helpful. So throughout this program, we deliver these services. And when we started looking at how the services were delivered and how the patients were doing, we were really surprised to see exactly how good the program was going. The program, first of all, got very busy very quickly. And after about six months, when we started looking at the data, we started seeing a very real difference in the outcomes between those who received home-based palliative care services and those who did not receive home-based palliative care services. And we found that those who were receiving home-based palliative care services cost was less, their hospitalizations were less, and their, uh, the number of times they had to go to the emergency department was less. So we saw just a better experience overall for those who were receiving home-based palliative care services. So uh, before we did our true data analysis, uh, we let the data run for about another year. And then we stepped back and we looked at the data and we looked over the course of a year and we found some findings that we found to be particularly important. And those findings were things like decreasing hospitalizations at the end of life, the last year of life, down from eight, down to four, 
decreasing ED visits. And for those of you who are not in the business, ED visits in, would only include ED visits that don't become hospitalizations. Um, so we decreased ED visits by another 30%. So we're working to keep people in their home to get care delivery that's consistent with the patient's goals of care so that people can be where they want to be with their families, remain independent for as long as possible. And that eventually, when the end of life does come, we did also find that we were able to increase hospice utilization. And this is, like I said earlier, Eric, this is that hospitalization. This is that hospice utilization that is good hospice utilization. This is getting folks who are truly nearing the end of life the services that they need so that they and their families can have the best experience uh, as, as humanly possible. Well, that's really what it's all about, Mark. And I really appreciate you sharing this story. You've created care continuum strategy that has really been effective in its execution. And we've talked about that strategy at a playbook, programmatic, a network level, and those pillars are what chart the course, but it's the execution capability that really ensures that you get there in terms of improving patient outcomes and lowering costs and really exemplifying the, the, the moral imperative of delivering higher value care and managing patients across the continuum of care. It requires effective communication and collaboration among all stakeholders involved in a patient healthcare journey. And as an ACO leader, you've established a strong interdisciplinary team. Uh, you've implemented robust communication protocols to break down silos and enhance coordination, ensuring that patient needs are met seamlessly from one care setting to another. And this approach not only improves patient outcomes, but it also enhances the overall efficiency and quality of care delivery. But to get the providers there, you have to get them to buy into this infrastructure for population health, practicing medicine and delivering care in this way is so different than the predominant fee-for-service world that we all know well. And I know you've been really thoughtful about how to engage the doctors and nurses in your ACO who are facing the patients every day to make sure that changes are made in a way that's most beneficial to patients. So for our value-based uh, list, uh, listeners out there that are engaging with this interview, what leadership insights can you provide them to effectively execute on a strategy like yours? If you're able to provide maybe one piece of advice on building a culture of care delivery to manage patients across the continuum, what would it be in terms of change management? So that's a great question, Eric, and, and very happy to answer that. I believe that we have some really exceptionally good providers exceptionally good doctors, people who want the best for their patients. I think, unfortunately, the practice of medicine at times, you can be faced with fewer resources than you actually need. And sometimes, and I've been in that room many times on my own, patients will bring up problems to you, and you may not have visibility of the actual resources that will be helpful to mitigate those problems. So one way to really engage providers is to give providers that extra support that they've been looking for when they say things like, we need additional something for our patients you have to provide that. So what does that mean? I'll give you an example. We have created a, a telephone line, which is a which is an all DVACO patients. And we call it our bat phone because I think we were worried about copyright infringement. We changed it from BAT to BATT, which is before adversity, try this. And I'm using the bat phone methodology, we have... Uh, created this structure where this is the phone line where providers or office staff can call in and say, we have these needs for our patients, or we have a patient in the office right now, 
who need something and I don't know how to connect them to those resources, right? When we talk to our providers about this, we say things like, talk to us about your patients that are keeping you up at night. What are the patients' needs that worry you the most? And when we hear it, providers reach out to us either and providers reach out to us often in, in, in real time when the patient's in the room with them, or they'll have their staff call us and we'll hear what the patients need. And we do this on a payer agnostic basis. We don't only do this for patients that may be in our payer programs. We try to connect people that are in any practices that may be affiliated with us. We try to connect them to the resources that can actually help the patients in a meaningful way. What we found is that a number of the services that come in through the bat phone are um, behavioral health uh, level services, uh, but there's also a lot of social drivers of health that providers uncover, physicians hear when they're in the office with the patients, and they just don't know how to close those gaps for patients because physicians, we're busy learning physician things, right? We went to medical school and we've become very good at managing hypertension and diabetes and thyroid disease and kidney disease. It becomes a little bit harder when a patient tells you, um, I don't have any food in my home. Now physicians feel like their toolkit is pretty empty when it comes to that. So what we have is we have a bath phone and you can call us and say that your patient has an absence of food in their home. And we're happy to help. We're happy to connect that patient to uh, either community-based resources, there are some national resources, to connect with resources to help to mitigate those social factors that influence health. That's a super important part of population health that is not to be uh, understated. It's important to the patients, it's important to value-based care, and it's important to the doctors. The doctor is sitting in front of that patient and the doctor wants the best outcome for their patient. There's no question about it. What we need to do is to give the doctors those tools that help them to manage their patients better. A second factor that we do to facilitate buy-in from our providers is to help their patients uh, without having to always ask the provider for new uh, activities. Instead of asking the provider to do something different, maybe we create programs that support the provider. And another example of something that we do is we call our successful aging program. Our successful aging program is uh, a program where we use home-based physical therapy and occupational therapy. And these are therapists who go into the homes of our beneficiaries. They do an in-home wellness assessment. That in-home wellness assessment could be some, do they, does, that in-home wellness assessment includes things like an evaluation of the patient's strength, uh, what's their balance, what's their ability to navigate their home, is the home safe for them, are there cords running across the floor, uh, are there throw rugs that need to be moved or eliminated? Uh, what's the caregiver support system in the home? We also have these therapists, and this is a skill set of your therapists. We have them doing medication reconciliation and understanding things like, hey, you're on two statins and maybe you shouldn't be on two statins. And maybe we need to connect with your provider's office to understand why you're taking two of the same type of drug. So we have them do a medication reconciliation when they're out in the home as well. And then they also look around and they say, is there a food in the refrigerator? Does the patient need a consultation with the dietitian? Is there anything else that we can do for them? Should we be getting our care coordinator involved? Is this someone who has slipped through the analytic cracks, meaning that they haven't shown up on our 
analyses and we need to flag them as maybe a serious illness person who needs extra attention. So these are all services that we build these services around the providers and it just helps our providers to be better doctors at the point of care, which is what they're trying to do. That's a great way to get people to want to be a part of your ACO. Well, Mark, I really appreciate your comments there. And it's such an important aspect of the value-based care movement and creating a culture that's thinking holistically about improving patient care. And there's this other aspect of value-based care, which I think is being an aspect of our elevated consciousness in the care delivery environment, and that's health equity. It, it would, it, just a few years ago, if we were talking about value-based care, we wouldn't have been as intentional about talking about health equity. It's unconscionable, it's unconscionable to think about how much equity was relegated in the prioritization of population health management, despite literally hundreds of years of individuals and in marginalized populations being the most vulnerable with shorter life expectancy, lower quality of care, limited care access, higher costs, poor health outcomes, go on and on. It, it took the pandemic as a flashpoint, I think, for a lot of us to deepen our relationship or deepen our understanding of the relationship between population health and health equity. And when the communities that you serve there in the greater Philadelphia area, they were already suffering from a multitude of challenges before the pandemic, from lack of access to care and crime, homelessness, there was educational disparities. You have zip codes in that region, literally, that have a 20-year differential in life expectancy. And and I know you wrote about this in your book. You even had a you had a full chapter dedicated to health equity specifically, and when equitable care is uh, threaded throughout the the book, and certainly has been um, a theme of the ACO in terms of the the populations that you're serving. And you know it 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 just seems as leaders in value based care, we now have this crystal clear understanding. We have to do more to manage our most vulnerable populations. It's the right thing to do socially, more morally, fiscally. And I know CMS and CMMI are doing a lot of work in terms of redesigning payment models and creating the right incentives for us to think about how to scale equity within value-based payment. So I wanted to ask you as a practicing hospice and palliative care physician, a leader in value-based care. What does health equity mean to you? And how does that orientation inform your leadership of the ACO and addressing the patient journey across that continuum of care? Health equity is a part of everything we do, right? We like to focus on health equity in every program that is a part of Delaware Valley ACO. So when we think about analytics, how do we consider what are we looking at uh, in terms of maybe some quality distribution, but let's look at it from a health equity lens too. And I, I, I think that we're probably young in this regard, but there may be some that are more advanced in this. I will say that we have begun our journey to understand that what are the differences in health equity, even among quality reports that might be okay. Quality, think of it this way, Eric. If you have a quality measure when you're and you're looking at mammograms, for instance, you may find that you have a mammogram rate of 88%. And you may pat yourself on the back and you may say, hey, that's great. Well, maybe you need to actually take another look at that. And maybe you need to take a look at that from the lens of equity. And you say, well, the only reason that you're at 88% is because the folks in this zip code or this census tract are 95%. And the folks in this census tract are in the 60s. So it's important that you think when you're trying to improve your quality, when you're trying to improve the care that you deliver for your communities, you really do have to think about what's the spread of those, of those measures and how are we looking at it differently? I think that's the next generation of the way that we look at quality measures. That's an important factor for us. And I think it's an important factor for how we're gonna look at this from population health. 
I think that this, the equity issue has really been laid bare by the pandemic. The pandemic really showed that there are just stark differences in opportunities for managing our populations. As you mentioned, there's a, there could be differences in 20 years of longevity right along the same train line, not too many stops away. So I have to say that we need to continue to focus on improving equitable care. In an accountable care organization, you're responsible for managing the care of your community, not the care of a fraction of your community. That community becomes your responsibility. And there are underrepresented folks or disenfranchised populations within your community that may either not be seeking preventative care in the way they're supposed to, they may be uh, a little bit behind on health, they may have opportunity when it comes to uh, health information, there may be other opportunities to manage these folks so that their care can be driven by a good relationship with their primary care physician, that they can get good blood pressure management, good diabetes management, manage their cholesterol, heart failure, whatever their chronic condition may be. And that could be managed at the level of the primary care physician, rather than waiting for people to do poorly, and then they end up in the emergency department. That's not good for patients. It's not good for families. And it's not good for ACOs because then we are responsible for that cost of care. So it is imperative for us to manage patients across the continuum of care if we want to actually decrease the cost of care. Mark, as I'm thinking about this, I think the pandemic also raised awareness and population health of the impact of social isolation and the elderly. If you're managing a frail and elderly population, the impact of social isolation as a driver of healthcare costs and utilization can't be uh, disregarded. And we saw it in the pandemic, just the individuals that were isolated and have no one to care for them. And uh, and that hasn't ended with the pandemic. Maybe it's gotten better, but we still have patients that end up in the ED for a host of reasons that don't require medical care. Some of them may be hungry and they don't have someone to cook them a meal or they need someone to help them get in and out of bed. They don't remember how to take their medications and all of that leads to this exacerbation and chronic conditions that put them in the hospital. And it's because of the isolation experiencing social isolation, it's been shown they have a higher risk of heart disease, stroke, depression, anxiety. The APA even had a study recently that showed that social isolation and loneliness were associated with slower gait and decreased ability to carry out the activities of daily living. And it's been found to they increase the risk of mortality. And I think it's really important for us to also think about this. And I know you've uh, written about that a little bit in your book and you're focused on that and the work that your ACO is doing through home health aides and community health workers. So I'd love to ask you just as a palliative care physician and a population health expert, how should ACOs be thinking about this increasingly important challenge of social isolation in our senior populations? And how do we build that workforce capability to address it? That's a great question, Eric. I think it was the Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, who first used the phrase that we have an epidemic of loneliness and isolation. And I, I couldn't agree with that more. Very often we see excess utilization in patients who have social isolation. And that social isolation can have multiple manifestations, right? It could be excess utilization of healthcare. It could be poor adherence to medications. It could be poor outcomes and increased frequencies of exacerbation of underlying disease because of just a lack of basic understanding of how to manage that disease and just the capabilities in the home to actually manage the disease well. 
So it's important that we uh, begin to focus our efforts on managing patients and first identifying patients who have social isolation and then managing these patients in a way that is, is meaningful to them. We will never in the ACO have enough capacity to address the overarching need to minimize social isolation in our communities. That's just never going to be, we're never going to fully have that capability. So what do you do? You need to make communications and you need to make, you need to build bridges with your community-based organizations. And those community-based organizations may have things like volunteers. And those volunteers may be interested and, and willing to sit with someone or maybe help them with their daily tasks or to do shopping for them to help to, so that they can have healthy foods in the home or to help out with any number of tasks that might seem menial to, to you or I, but this is for folks who may have less a lower level of function than we do. There's actually a great organization out there that does do some work in the greater Philadelphia area. It's called Papa Pals, PA Pals. And um, they, it is an organization that helps to support patients who are suffering from social isolation and loneliness so that they can have services that they need. Maybe it's a companion. Maybe it's a conversation that they have with people. Maybe it's to, like I said before, maybe it's to help with shopping or some minor transportation or something like that, or helping out to make sure that the home is safe. And these programs really are important to deliver for patients who have social isolation. Well, Mark, I wanted to shift gears a little bit and ask you about an industry trend that's really disrupting the landscape and providing an opportunity for transformed models of care. We've seen these payvider relationships between primary care service delivery and large payers that has been engaging new healthcare consumers and managing an increasing percentage of the market such that traditional models of primary care uh, are being challenged. We've had some of them on our show, some of these primary care models like Absolute Care and Oak Street Health and ChinMed that have seen remarkable success in this journey. And similarly, Humana, as I understand, has become a majority equity partner in the Delaware Valley Accountable Care Organization. You've created this payvider relationship, which was initially established as a, a JV between Mainline Health and Jefferson Health, which are you know, two of the region's uh, largest health systems in Philly. And you've, you were in your early tenure as CEO involved in orchestrating that joint venture with Humana. And it was the first time that Humana had controlled an ACO of your caliber in terms of size and scope. And when at DVACO, you've had a number of payer programs, but that this unique payvider arrangement with Humana endows the organization with another level of accountability for transforming practice. So I wanted to ask you if you could provide some context on this payvider relationship that Delaware Valley ACO has with Humana and how is that being leveraged to improve your position as a large multi-payer, payer agnostic, risk-bearing entity? So Eric, when we look across the landscape, um, we see various relationships between providers and payers, right? So I think we're all used to the traditional fee-for-service, provider delivers a service, payer pays for the service, what we have been working to do is to try to improve relationships between payers and providers um, that allows a provider organization to be no more nimble when it comes to performance in some of the payer programs and to capitalize on uh, some of that important uh, movement as well. So, no one knows how to succeed in a payer uh, relationship as much as the payer does. And since we have been collaborative in our payvider relationship with Humana, uh, we've had you know, very good success. Um, we have been, we've become more laser focused on the areas that really matter to improve performance 
such as STARS performance in Medicare Advantage and other quality performance in, in our Medicare and commercial programs. So that's been significantly helpful. We were worried initially that we would see other payers reticent to do business with DVACO that had Humana as an equity partner. And that's actually not the case. Uh, since, we've, since we've begun this equity partnership, we actually have already started three new payer programs. And I think that what this payvider relationship says to the market is we are laser focused on success in value-based programs. We are forecasting in a way that we have never forecasted. We are sticking to business plans in ways that we have never stuck to business plans. And we understand the mechanisms to be successful in these value-based programs. So that has allowed us to be a, port, be a part of that movement where with the payvider organization, as a provider, you get to also partake in some of the uh, premium dollars to help to support your activities that you're doing to transform care. Well, Mark, I've really enjoyed our conversation today, and I wanted to wrap with you on something that is maybe a little inspirational. And I, and I drew some inspiration when I was reading your new book, and you had a quote from Simon Sinek about the infinite game. And that where he says, infinite minded leaders don't ask their people to fixate on finite goals. They ask their people to help them figure out a way to advance towards a more infinite vision of the future that benefits everyone. And that's the type of visionary leadership that we need to drive healthcare transformation. We have to have a complete paradigm shift in not only care delivery, but how we lead. I mean, we have to realize that we're playing in games that don't have a finish line. You don't have a finish line in a friendship or a marriage. And, and we should think about that in terms of business where we need to stop thinking about being number one and beating competition. We have to think about the future and the future is in value-based care transformation and improving health outcomes, reducing disparities, saving our country really from the looming insolvency of the Medicare program. And it's all about thinking about how to play with an infinite mindset. So I wanted to ask you in terms of your leadership with Delaware Valley ACO, how do you, how are you thinking of the work that you do in an infinite game mindset? And when for our listeners out there, maybe some of them are in some finite minded organizations that are still in the trenches battling when fee for service and thinking about market share and short term goals with PL and procedural intensity and fee for service transactional volume. What advice would you maybe give to them in terms of maybe evolving in their thinking to become more infinite in terms of how they think about improving long term outcomes for the populations that they serve? Yeah, I can say at this point, we're all in the same game here, right? And, and I don't want anyone to think that any one particular organization has really fixed the issue and we're not along that continuum. We're all along the same continuum. And we're making sure that doctors can manage their fee-for-service revenue and then make some additional revenue through value-based care as well. The way that I see it is, giving the challenges of the finances of delivery of health care, the expense of um, emerging medical interventions, a change is coming, right? The best thing that I can say to our physicians and our healthcare leaders, if we don't take charge of the change, it is going to happen to us rather than with us. We should be leading the charge in making that change. I think that value-based care demonstrates a good way for us to deliver that change in a way that's not just meaningful to dollars and cents, it's meaningful to patients, right? Medicine seems to be one of the only institutions where we pay people to do activities rather than outcomes, right? If I 
go to, uh, if I bring my car to be repaired and they say that you're, you have a problem with your alternator and they replace it and it wasn't the alternator, well, I'm going back and I'm expecting them to keep me whole now, even though they maybe their diagnostic was wrong. In healthcare, we have this propensity that we did something, we should get paid for that, and it doesn't matter about the outcome. We need to focus more on outcomes. Focusing on outcomes is good for patients. It's good for physicians who want to have good outcomes. And it's better for a system that should be paying for better outcomes. Value-based care leads us in that realm. Well, Mark, thank you for that inspiration. We're, indeed, we all are in it together, and that's really what we try to emphasize on this podcast. How can we share best practices, democratize those insights, and really bring on the leaders like yourself that are out there doing the great work? We are literally in those two canoes. The future is happening, and we're in the race to make value work. And I, I just uh, can't thank you enough for being a part of our of this discussion and sharing some of your insights. And I know our listeners are going to be better for it as they navigate some of the changes that are underway so they can position their organization to be not only sustainable, but to be more effective in delivering these population health outcomes. Well, thank you, Eric. It was a pleasure to be here today.